I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Almost everyone had a bomb shelter. You had to have one. In fact, you needed the latest model because the Russians were always developing new weapons that could penetrate the old bomb shelters. Foster, You're Dead by Philip K. Dick. That's next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode. Thank you for your support of the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. We're adding new listeners around the world every week. We've now got 101 ratings on Spotify with an average rating of 4.9. And Jeff didn't just buy us a coffee yesterday. He bought $25 worth of coffee. There's a link in the description if you'd like to buy us a coffee. Philip K. Dick is the most popular author on our podcast. Today, we present a story that could have happened during the Cold War. From the pages of Star Science Fiction Stories, number three, in 1955. Foster, You're Dead, by Philip K. Dick. School was agony, as always. Only today it was worse. Mike Foster finished weaving his two watertight baskets and sat rigid, while all around him the other children worked. Outside the concrete and steel building, the late afternoon sun shone cool. The hills sparkled green and brown in the crisp autumn air. In the overhead sky, a few gnats circled lazily above the town. The vast, ominous shape of Mrs. Cummings, the teacher, silently approached his desk. Foster, are you finished? Yes, ma'am he answered eagerly. He pushed the baskets up. Can I leave now? 
Mrs. Cummings examined the baskets critically. What about your trap making? She demanded. He fumbled in his desk and brought out his intricate small animal trap. All finished, Mrs. Cummings. And my knife, it's done too. He showed her the razor-edged blade of his knife, glittering metal he had shaped from a discarded gasoline drum. She picked up the knife and ran her expert finger doubtfully along the blade. Not strong enough, she stated. You've over-sharpened it. It'll lose its edge the first time you use it. Go down to the main weapons lab and examine the knives they've got there. Then hone it back some and get a thicker blade. Mrs. Cummings, Mike Foster pleaded, could I fix it tomorrow? Could I not fix it right now? Please? Everybody in the classroom was watching with interest. Mike Foster flushed. He hated to be singled out and made conspicuous, but he had to get away. He couldn't stay in school one minute more. Inexorable, Mrs. Cummings rumbled, Tomorrow is digging day. You won't have time to work on your knife. I will, he reassured her quickly. After the digging. No, you're not too good at digging. The old woman was measuring the boy's spindly arms and legs. I think you better get your knife finished today and spend all day tomorrow down at the field. What's the use of digging? Mike Foster demanded in despair. Everybody has to know how to dig, Mrs. Cummings answered patiently. Children were snickering on all sides. She shushed them with a hostile glare. You all know the importance of digging. When the war begins, the whole surface will be littered with debris and rubble. If we hope to survive, we'll have to dig down, won't we? Have any of you ever watched a gopher digging around the roots of plants? The gopher knows he'll find something valuable down there, under the surface of the ground. We're all going to be little brown gophers. We'll all have to learn to dig down in the rubble and find the good things, because that's where they'll be. Mike Foster sat miserably plucking his knife as Mrs. Cummings moved away from his desk and up the aisle. A few children grinned contemptuously at him, but nothing penetrated his haze of wretchedness. Digging wouldn't do him any good. When the bombs came, he'd be killed instantly. All the vaccination shots up and down his arms, on his thighs and buttocks, would be of no use. He had wasted his allowance money. Mike Foster wouldn't be alive to catch any of the bacterial plagues. Not unless... He sprang up and followed Mrs. Cummings to her desk. In an agony of desperation, he blurted, Please, I have to leave. I have to do something. Mrs. Cummings' tired lips twisted angrily, but the boy's fearful eyes stopped her. What's wrong? she demanded. Don't you feel well? The boy stood frozen, unable to answer her. Pleased by the tableau, the class murmured and giggled until Mrs. Cummings rapped angrily on her desk with a writer. Be quiet, she snapped. Her voice softened a shade. Michael, if you're not functioning properly, go downstairs to the psych clinic. There's no point trying to work when your reactions are conflicted. Miss Groves will be glad to optimum you. No, 
Foster said. Then what is it? The class stirred. Voices answered for Foster. His tongue was stuck with misery and humiliation. His father's an anti-P, the voices explained. They don't have a shelter, and he isn't registered in the civic defense. His father hasn't even contributed to the Nats. They haven't done anything. Mrs. Cummings gazed up in amazement at the mute boy. You don't have a shelter? He shook his head. A strange feeling filled the woman. But she had started to say, but you'll die up here. She changed it to, but where'll you go? Nowhere, the mild voices answered for him. Everybody else will be down in their shelters, and he'll be up here. He even doesn't have a permit to the school shelter. Mrs. Cummings was shocked. In her dull, scholastic way, she had assumed every child in the school had a permit to the elaborate subsurface chambers under the building. But of course not. Only children whose parents were part of C.D., who contributed to arming the community. And if Foster's father was an anti-P... He's afraid to sit here, the voices chimed calmly. He's afraid it'll come while he's sitting here, and everybody else will be safe down in the shelter. He wandered slowly along, hands deep in his pockets, kicking at dark stones on the sidewalk. The sun was setting. Snub-nosed commute rockets were unloading tired people, glad to be home from the factory strip a hundred miles to the west. On the distant hills, something flashed, a radar tower revolving silently in the evening gloom. The circling gnats had increased in number. The twilight hours were the most dangerous. Visual observers couldn't spot high-speed missiles coming in close to the ground, assuming the missiles came. A mechanical news machine shouted at him excitedly as he passed. War, death, amazing new weapons developed at home and abroad. He hunched his shoulders and continued on, past the little concrete shells that served as houses, each exactly alike, sturdy, reinforced pillboxes. Ahead of him, bright neon signs glowed in the settling gloom, the business district, alive with traffic and milling people. Half a block from the bright cluster of neons, he halted. To his right was a public shelter, a dark, tunnel-like entrance with a mechanical turnstile glowing dully. Fifty cents admission. If he was here, on the street, and he had fifty cents, he'd be all right. He had pushed down into public shelters many times during the practice raids, but other times, hideous nightmare times, it never left his mind. He hadn't had the fifty cents. He had stood mute and terrified while people pushed excitedly past him and the shrill shrieks of the sirens thundered everywhere. He continued slowly until he came to the brightest blotch of light, the great gleaming showrooms of General Electronics, two blocks long, illuminated on all sides, a vast square of pure color and radiation. He halted and examined for the millionth time the fascinating shapes, the display that always drew him to a hypnotized stop whenever he passed. In the center of the vast room was a single object, an elaborate, pulsing blob of machinery and support struts, beams and walls and sealed locks. 
All spotlights were turned on it. Huge signs announced its hundred and one advantages. As if there could be any doubt. The new 1972 bomb-proof radiation-sealed subsurface shelter is here. Check the star-studded features. Automatic descent lift. Jam-proof. Self-powered. Easy locking. Triple-layer hull, guaranteed to withstand 5G pressure without buckling. A powered heating and refrigeration system. Self-servicing air purification network. Three decontamination stages for food and water. Four hygienic stages for pre-burn exposure. Complete antibiotic processing. Easy payment plan. He gazed at the shelter a long time. It was mostly a big tank with a neck at one end, and that was the descent tube and an emergency escape hatch at the other. It was completely self-contained, a miniature world that supplied its own light, heat, air, water, medicines, and almost inexhaustible food. When fully stocked, there were visual and audio tapes, entertainment, beds, chairs, vid screen, everything that made up the above-surface home. It was, actually, a home below the ground. Nothing was missing that might be needed or enjoyed. A family would be safe, even comfortable, during the most severe H-bomb and bacterial spray attack. It cost $20,000. While he was gazing silently at the massive display, one of the salesmen stepped out onto the dark sidewalk on his way to the cafeteria. Hi, Sonny, he said automatically as he passed Mike Foster. Not bad, is it? Can I go inside? Foster asked quickly. Can I go down in it? The salesman stopped as he recognized the boy. You're that kid, he said slowly. That damned kid who's always pestering us. I'd like to go down in it just for a couple minutes. I won't bust anything, I promise. I won't even touch anything. The salesman was young and blonde, a good-looking man in his early twenties. He hesitated, his reactions divided. The kid was a pest, but he had a family, and that meant a reasonable prospect. Business was bad. It was late September, and the seasonal slump was still on. There was no profit in telling the boy to go peddle his news tapes. But on the other hand, it was bad business encouraging some small fry to crawl around the merchandise. They wasted time. They broke things. They pilfered small stuff when nobody was looking. No dice, the salesman said. Look, send your old man down here. Has he seen what we've got? Yes, Mike Foster said tightly. What's holding him back? The salesman waved expansively up at the great gleaming display. We'll give him a good trade-in on his old one, allowing for depreciation and obsolescence. What model has he got? We don't have any, Mike Foster said. The salesman blinked. Come again? My father says it's a waste of money. He says they're trying to scare people into buying things they don't need. He says, your father's an anti-P? Yes, Mike Foster answered unhappily. The salesman let out his breath. Okay, kid. Sorry we can't do business. It's not your fault. He lingered. What the hell's wrong with him? Does he put it on the gnats? No. The salesman swore under his breath. A coaster, sliding along, 
safe because the rest of the community was putting up 30% of its income to keep a constant defense system going. There were always a few of them in every town. How's your mother feel? The salesman demanded. She go along with him? She says, Mike Foster broke off. Couldn't I go down in it for a little while? I won't bust anything. Just once. How'd we ever sell it if we let kids run through it? We're not marking it down as a demonstration model. We've got roped into that too often. The salesman's curiosity was aroused. How's a guy get to be an anti-P? He always feel this way, or did he get stung with something? He says they sold people as many cars and washing machines and television sets as they could use. He says gnats and bomb shelters aren't good for anything, so people never get all they can use. He says factories can keep turning out guns and gas masks forever, and as long as people are afraid, they'll keep paying for them, because they think if they don't, they might get killed. And maybe a man gets tired of paying for a new car every year and stops. But he's never going to stop buying shelters to protect his children. You believe that? The salesman asked. I wish we had that shelter, Mike Foster answered. If we had a shelter like that, I'd go down and sleep in it every night. It'd be there when we needed it. Maybe there won't be a war, the salesman said. He sensed the boy's misery and fear and he grinned good-naturedly down at him. Don't worry all the time. You probably watch too many vid tapes. Get out and play for a change. Nobody's safe on the surface, Mike Foster said. We have to be down below, and there's no place I can go. Send your old man around, the salesman muttered uneasily. Maybe we can talk him into it. We've got a lot of time payment plans. Tell him to ask for Bill O'Neill, okay? Mike Foster wandered away, down the black evening street. He knew he was supposed to be home, but his feet dragged and his body was heavy and dull. His fatigue made him remember what the athletic coach had said the day before during exercises. They were practicing breath suspension, holding a lungful of air and running. He hadn't done well. The others were still red-faced and racing when he halted, expelled his air, and stood gasping frantically for breath. Foster, the coach said angrily, you're dead. You know that? If this had been a gas attack, he shook his head wearily. Go over there and practice by yourself. You've got to do better if you expect to survive. But he didn't expect to survive. When he stepped up on the porch of his home, he found the living room lights already on. He could hear his father's voice, and more faintly his mother's from the kitchen. He closed the door after him and began unpeeling his coat. Is that you? his father demanded. Bob Foster sat sprawled out in his chair, his lap full of tapes and report sheets from his retail furniture store. Where have you been? Dinner's been ready half an hour. He had taken off his coat and rolled up his sleeves. His arms were pale and thin, but muscular. He was tired. His eyes were large and dark, his hair thinning. Restlessly, he moved the tapes around from one stack to another. I'm sorry, Mike Foster said. His father examined his pocket watch. He was surely the only man who still carried a watch. Go wash your hands. What have you been doing? 
he scrutinized his son. You look odd. Do you feel all right? I was downtown, Mike Foster said. What were you doing? Looking at the shelters. Wordless, his father grabbed up a handful of reports and stuffed them into a folder. His thin lips set, hard lines wrinkled his forehead. He snorted furiously as tape spilled everywhere. He bent stiffly to pick them up. Mike Foster made no move to help him. He crossed to the closet and gave his coat to the hanger. When he turned away, his mother was directing the table of food into the dining room. They ate without speaking, intent on their food and not looking at each other. Finally, his father said, What did you see? Same old dogs, I suppose. There's the new 72 models, Mike Foster answered. They're the same as the 71 models. His father threw down his fork savagely. The table caught and absorbed it. A few new gadgets, some more chrome, that's all. Suddenly, he was facing his son defiantly. Right? Mike Foster toyed wretchedly with his cream chicken. The new ones have a jam-proof descent lift. You can't get stuck halfway down. All you have to do is get in it, and it does the rest. There'll be a new one next year that'll pick you up and carry you down. This one'll be obsolete as soon as people buy it. That's what they want. They want you to keep buying. They keep putting out new ones as fast as they can. This isn't 1972. It's still 1971. What's that thing doing out already? Can't they wait? Mike Foster didn't answer. He had heard it all before, many times. There was never anything new, only chrome and gadgets. Yet the old ones became obsolete anyhow. His father's argument was loud, impassioned, almost frenzied. But it made no sense. Let's get an old one then, he blurted out. I don't care. Anyone will do, even a secondhand one. No, you want the new one, shiny and glittery, to impress the neighbors, Lots of dials and knobs and machinery. How much do they want for it? $20,000? His father let his breath out. Just like that. They have easy time payment plans. Sure, you pay for it for the rest of your life. Interest, carrying charges. And how long is it guaranteed for? Three months. What happens when it breaks down? It'll stop purifying and decontaminating. It'll fall apart as soon as the three months are over. Mike Foster shook his head. No, it's big and sturdy. His father flushed. He was a small man, slender and light, brittle-boned. He thought suddenly of his lifetime of lost battles, struggling up the hard way, carefully collecting and holding on to something. A job, money, his retail store. Bookkeeper to manager, finally owner. They're scaring us to keep the wheels going, he yelled desperately at his wife and son. They don't want another depression. Bob, his wife said, slowly and quietly, you have to stop this. I can't stand any more. Bob Foster blinked. What are you talking about? He muttered. I'm tired. These damn taxes. It isn't possible for a little store to keep open. Not with the big chains. There ought to be a law. His voice trailed off. I guess I'm through eating. He pushed away from the table and got to his feet. I'm going to lie down on the couch and take a nap. His wife's thin face blazed. You have to get one. 
I can't stand the way they talk about us. All the neighbors and the merchants, everybody who knows. I can't go anywhere or do anything without hearing about it. Ever since that day, they put up the flag, anti-P. The last in the whole town, those things circling around up there, and everybody paying for them but us. No, Bob Foster said, I can't get one. Why not? Because, he answered simply, I can't afford it. There was silence. You've put everything in that store, Ruth said finally, and it's failing anyhow. You're just like a pack rat, hoarding everything down at that ratty little hole in the wall. Nobody wants wood furniture anymore. You're a relic, a curiosity. She slammed at the table, and it leaped wildly to gather the empty dishes, like a startled animal. It dashed furiously from the room and back into the kitchen, the dishes churning in its wash tank as it raced. Bob Foster sighed wearily. Let's not fight. I'll be in the living room. Let me take a nap for an hour or so. Maybe we can talk about it later. Always later, Ruth said bitterly. Her husband disappeared into the living room, a small hunched-over figure, hair scraggly and gray, shoulder blades like broken wings. Mike got to his feet. I'll go study my homework, he said. He followed after his father, a strange look on his face. The living room was quiet. The vid set was off and the lamp was down low. Ruth was in the kitchen setting the controls on the stove for the next month's meals. Bob Foster lay stretched out on the couch, his shoes off, his head on a pillow. His face was gray with fatigue. Mike hesitated for a moment and then said, Can I ask you something? His father grunted and stirred, opened his eyes. What? Mike sat down facing him. Tell me again how you gave advice to the president. His father pulled himself up. I didn't give any advice to the president. I just talked to him. Tell me about it. I've told you a million times. Every once in a while, since you were a baby, you were with me. His voice softened as he remembered. You were just a toddler. We had to carry you. What did he look like? Well, his father began, slipping into a routine he had worked out and petrified over the years. He looked about like he does in the vid screen. Smaller, though. Why was he here? Mike demanded avidly, although he knew every detail. The president was his hero, the man he most admired in all the world. Why'd he come all the way out here to our town? He was on a tour. Bitterness crept into his father's voice. He happened to be passing through. What kind of a tour? Visiting towns all over the country. The harshness increased. Seeing how we were getting along, seeing if we had bought enough gnats and bomb shelters and plague shots and gas masks and radar networks to repel attack. The General Electronics Corporation was just beginning to put up its big showrooms and displays, everything bright and glittering and expensive. The first defense equipment available for home purchase. His lips twisted, all on easy payment plans. Ads, posters, searchlights, free gardenias and dishes for the ladies. Mike Foster's breath panted in his throat. That was the day we got our preparedness flag, he said hungrily. That was the day he came to give us our flag. 
and they ran it up on the flagpole in the middle of town, and everybody was there yelling and cheering. You remember that? I think so. I remember people and sounds, and it was hot. It was June, wasn't it? June 10, 1965. Quite an occasion. Not many towns had the big green flag then. People were still buying cars and TV sets. They hadn't discovered those days were over. TV sets and cars are good for something. You can only manufacture and sell so many of them. He gave you the flag, didn't he? Well, he gave it to all us merchants. The Chamber of Commerce had it arranged. Competition between towns. See who can buy the most the soonest. Improve our town and at the same time stimulate business. Of course, the way they put it, the idea was if we had to buy our gas masks and bomb shelters, we'd take better care of them. As if we ever damaged telephones and sidewalks. Or highways, because the whole state provided them. Or armies. Haven't there always been armies? Hasn't the government always organized its people for defense? I guess defense costs too much. I guess they save a lot of money, cut down the national debt by this. Tell me what he said, Mike Foster whispered. His father fumbled for his pipe and lit it with trembling hands. He said, here's your flag, boys. You've done a good job. Bob Foster choked as acrid pipe fumes guzzled up. He was red-faced, sunburned, not embarrassed, perspiring and grinning. He knew how to handle himself. He knew a lot of first names, told a funny joke. The boy's eyes were wide with awe. He came all the way out here, and you talked to him. Yeah, his father said. I talked to him. They were all yelling and cheering. The flag was going up. The big green preparedness flag. You said... I said to him, is that all you brought us? A strip of green cloth? Bob Foster dragged tensely on his pipe. That was when I became an anti-P. Only I didn't know it at the time. All I knew was we were on our own, except for a strip of green cloth. We should have been a country, a whole nation, 170 million people working together to defend ourselves. And instead were a lot of separate little towns, little walled forts, sliding and slipping back to the Middle Ages, raising our separate armies. Will the president ever come back? Mike asked. I doubted. He was just passing through. If he comes back, Mike whispered, tense and not daring to hope. Can we go see him? Can we look at him? Bob Foster pulled himself up to a sitting position. His bony arms were bare and white. His lean face was drab with weariness and resignation. How much was that damn thing you saw? He demanded hoarsely. That bomb shelter. Mike's heart stopped beating. $20,000? This is Thursday. I'll go down with you and your mother next Saturday. Bob Foster knocked out his smoldering half-lit pipe. I'll get it on the easy payment plan. The fall buying season is coming up soon. I usually do good. People buy wood furniture for Christmas gifts. He got up abruptly from the couch. Is it a deal? Mike couldn't answer. He could only nod. Fine, his father said, with desperate cheerfulness. Now you won't have to go down and look at it in the window. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The shelter was installed at an additional $200 by a fast-working team of laborers in brown coats with the words General Electronics stitched across their backs. The backyard was quickly restored. Dirt and shrubs spaded in place, the surface smoothed over, and the bill respectfully slipped under the front door. The lumbering delivery truck, now empty, clattered off down the street and the neighborhood was again silent. Mike Foster stood with his mother and a small group of admiring neighbors on the back porch of the house. Well, Mrs. Carlyle said finally, now you've got a shelter, the best there is. That's right. Ruth Foster agreed. She was conscious of the people around her. It had been some time since so many had shown up at once. Grim satisfaction filled her gaunt frame, almost resentment. It certainly makes a difference, she said harshly. Yes, Mr. Douglas from down the street agreed. Now you have some place to go. He had picked up the thick book of instructions that laborers had left. It says here you can stock it for a whole year. Live down there twelve months without coming up once. He shook his head admiringly. Mine's an old 69 model. Good for only six months. I guess maybe... It's still good enough for us, his wife cut in. But there was a longing wistfulness in her voice. Can we go down and peek at it, Ruth? It's all ready, isn't it? Mike made a strangled noise and moved jerkily forward. His mother smiled understandingly. He has to go down there first. He gets first look at it. It's really for him, you know. Their arms folded against the chill September wind. The group of men and women stood waiting and watching as the boy approached the neck of the shelter and halted a few steps in front of it. He entered the shelter carefully, almost afraid to touch anything. The neck was big for him. It was built to admit a full-grown man. As soon as his weight was on the descent lift, it dropped beneath him. With a breathless whoosh, it plummeted down the pitch-black tube to the body of the shelter. The lift slammed hard against its shock absorbers, and the boy stumbled from it. The lift shot back to the surface, simultaneously sealing off the subsurface shelter, an impassable steel and plastic cork in the narrow neck. Lights had come on around him automatically. The shelter was bare and empty. No supplies had yet been carried down. It smelled of varnish and motor grease. 
Below him, the generators were throbbing dully. His presence activated the purifying and decontamination systems. On the blank concrete wall, meters and dials moved into sudden activity. He sat down on the floor, knees drawn up, face solemn, eyes wide. There was no sound but the generators. The world above was completely cut off. He was in a little self-contained cosmos. Everything needed was here, or would be here soon. Food, water, air, things to do. Nothing else was wanted. He could reach out and touch whatever he needed. He could stay here forever, through all time without stirring. Complete and entire. Not lacking, not fearing. With only the sound of the generators purring below him and the sheer ascetic walls around and above him on all sides, faintly warm, completely friendly, like a living container. Suddenly he shouted, a loud, jubilant shout that echoed and bounced from wall to wall. He was deafened by the reverberation. He shut his eyes tight and clenched his fists. Joy filled him. He shouted again and let the roar of sound lap over him his own voice reinforced by the near walls, close and hard and incredibly powerful. The kids in school knew even before he showed up the next morning. They greeted him as he approached, all of them grinning and nudging each other. Is it true your folks got a new General Electronics model S-72FT? Earl Peters demanded. That's right, Mike answered. His heart swelled with a peaceful confidence he had never known. Drop around, he said as casually as he could. I'll show it to you. He passed on, conscious of their envious faces. Well, Mike, Mrs. Cummings said as he was leaving the classroom at the end of the day. How does it feel? He halted by her desk, shy and full of quiet pride. It feels good he admitted. Is your father contributing to the Nats? Yes. And you've got a permit for our school shelter? He happily showed her the small blue seal clamped around his wrist. He mailed a check to the city for everything. He said, as long as I've gone this far, I might as well go the rest of the way. Now you have everything everybody else has. The elderly woman smiled across at him. I'm glad of that. You're now a pro-P, except there's no such term. You're just like everyone else. The next day, the news machine shrilled out the news. The first revelation of the new Soviet boar pellets. Bob Foster stood in the middle of the living room, the news tape in his hands, his thin face flushed with fury and despair. Damn it! It's a plot! His voice rose in baffled frenzy. We just bought the thing, and now look, look! He shoved the tape at his wife. You see? I told you! I've seen it, Ruth said wildly. I suppose you think the whole world was just waiting with you in mind. They're always improving weapons, Bob. Last week it was those grain impregnation flakes. This week it's more pellets. You don't expect them to stop the wheels of progress because you finally broke down and bought a shelter, do you? The man and woman faced each other. What the hell are we going to do? 
Bob Foster asked quietly. Ruth paced back into the kitchen. I heard they were going to turn out adapters. Adapters? What do you mean? So people won't have to buy new shelters. There was a commercial on the vid screen. They're going to put some kind of metal grill on the market as soon as the government approves it. They've spread it over the ground, and it intercepts the boar pellets. It screens them, makes them explode on the surface so they can't burrow down to the shelter. How much? They didn't say. Mike Foster sat crouched on the sofa, listening. He had heard the news at school. They were taking their test on berry identification, examining encased samples of wild berries to distinguish the harmless ones from the toxic when the bell had announced a general assembly. The principal read them the news about the boar pellets and then gave a routine lecture on emergency treatment of a new variant of typhus recently developed. His parents were still arguing. We'll have to get one, Ruth Foster said calmly. Otherwise, it won't make any difference whether we've got a shelter or not. The boar pellets were specifically designed to penetrate the surface and seek out warmth. As soon as the Russians have them in production, I'll get one, Bob Foster said. I'll get an anti-pellet grill and whatever else they have. I'll buy everything they put on the market. I'll never stop buying. It's not as bad as that. You know, this game has one real advantage over selling people cars and TV sets. With something like this, we have to buy. It isn't a luxury. Something big and flashy to impress the neighbors. Something we could do without. If we don't buy this, we die. They always said the way to sell something was create anxiety in people. Create a sense of insecurity. Tell them they smell bad or look funny. But this makes a joke out of deodorant and hair oil. You can't escape this. If you don't buy, they'll kill you. The perfect sales pitch. Buy or die. New slogan. Have a shiny new General Electronics H-bomb shelter in your backyard or be slaughtered. Stop talking like that, Ruth snapped. Bob Foster threw himself down at the kitchen table. All right, I give up. I'll go along with it. You'll get one? I think they'll be on the market by Christmas. Oh, yes, Foster said. They'll be out by Christmas. There was a strange look on his face. I'll buy one of the damn things for Christmas, and so will everybody else. The GEC grill screen adapters were a sensation. Mike Foster walked slowly along the crowd-packed December street through the late afternoon twilight. Adapters glittered in every store window, all shapes and sizes for every kind of shelter, all prices for every pocketbook. The crowds of people were happy and excited, typical Christmas crowds, shoving good-naturedly, loaded down with packages and heavy overcoats. The air was white with gusts of sweeping snow. Cars nosed cautiously along the jammed streets. Lights and neon displays, immense glowing store windows gleamed on all sides. His own house was dark and silent. His parents weren't home yet. Both of them were down at the store working. Business had been bad, and his mother was taking the place of one of the clerks. Mike held his hand up to the code key, and the front door let him in. The automatic furnace had kept the house warm and pleasant. He removed his coat and put away his school books. 
He didn't stay in the house long, his heart pounding with excitement. He felt his way out the back door and started onto the back porch. He forced himself to stop, turn around, and re-enter the house. It was better if he didn't hurry things. He had worked out every moment of the process. From the first instant he saw the low hinge of the neck reared up, hard and firm against the evening sky. He had made a fine art of it. There was no wasted motion. His procedure had been shaped, molded, until it was a beautiful thing. The first overwhelming sense of presence as the neck of the shelter came around him. Then the blood-freezing rush of air as the descent lift hurtled down all the way to the bottom. And the grandeur of the shelter itself. Every afternoon, as soon as he was home, he made his way down into it, below the surface, concealed and protected in its steel silence, as he had done since the first day. Now the chamber was full, not empty, filled with endless cans of food, pillows, books, vid tapes, audio tapes, prints on the walls, bright fabrics, textures, and colors, even vases of flowers. The shelter was his place, where he crouched, curled up, surrounded by everything he needed. Delaying things as long as possible, he hurried back through the house and rummaged in the audio tape file. He'd sit down in the shelter until dinner, listening to wind in the willows. His parents knew where to find him. He was always down there. Two hours of uninterrupted happiness, alone by himself in the shelter. And then, when dinner was over, he would hurry back down to stay until time for bed. Sometimes late at night, when his parents were sound asleep, he got quietly up and made his way outside to the shelter neck and down into its silent depths to hide until morning. He found the audio tape and hurried through the house, out onto the back porch and into the yard. The sky was a bleak gray, shot with streamers of ugly black clouds. The lights of the town were coming on here and there. The yard was cold and hostile. He made his way uncertainly down the steps and froze. A vast, yawning cavity loomed. A gaping mouth, vacant and toothless, fixed open to the night sky. There was nothing else. The shelter was gone. He stood for an endless time, the tape clutched in one hand, the other hand on the porch railing. Night came on, the dead hole dissolved in darkness. The whole world gradually collapsed into silence and abysmal gloom. Weak stars came out, lights in nearby houses came on fitfully, cold and faint. The boy saw nothing. He stood unmoving, his body rigid as stone, still facing the great pit where the shelter had been. Then his father was standing beside him. How long have you been here? His father was saying. How long, Mike? Answer me. With a violent effort, Mike managed to drag himself back. You're home early, he muttered. I left the store early on purpose. I wanted to be here when you got home. It's gone. Yes. His father's voice was cold, without emotion. The shelter's gone. I'm sorry, Mike. I called them and told them to take it back. Why? I couldn't pay for it. 
Not this Christmas, with those grills everyone's getting. I can't compete with them. He broke off and then continued wretchedly. They were damn decent. They gave me back half the money I put in. His voice twisted ironically. I knew if I made a deal with them before Christmas, I'd come out better. They can resell it to somebody else. Mike said nothing. Try to understand, his father went on harshly. I had to throw what capital I could scrape together into the store. I have to keep it running. It was either give up the shelter or the store. And if I gave up the store, then we wouldn't have anything. His father caught hold of his arm. Then we'd have to give up the shelter, too. His thin, strong fingers dug in spasmodically. You're growing up. You're old enough to understand. We'll get one later. Maybe not the biggest, the most expensive, but something. It was a mistake, Mike. I couldn't swing it, not with the damn adapter things to buck. I'm keeping up with the NAT payments, though, and your school tab. I'm keeping that going. This isn't a matter of principle, he finished desperately. I can't help it. Do you understand, Mike? I had to do it. Mike pulled away. Where are you going? His father hurried after him. Come back here. He grabbed for his son frantically, but in the gloom he stumbled and fell. Stars blinded him as his head smashed into the edge of the house. He pulled himself up painfully and groped for some support. When he could see again, the yard was empty. His son was gone. Mike, he yelled. Where are you? There was no answer. The night wind blew clouds of snow around him, a thin, bitter gust of chilled air, wind and darkness, nothing else. Bill O'Neill wearily examined the clock on the wall. It was 9.30. He could finally close the doors and lock up the big, dazzling store, push the milling, murmuring throngs of people outside and on their way home. Thank God, he breathed as he held the door open for the last old lady, loaded down with packages and presents. He threw the code bolt in place and pulled down the shade. What a mob! I never saw so many people. All done, Al Connor said from the cash register. I'll count the money. You go around and check everything. Make sure we got all of them out. O'Neill pushed his blonde hair back and loosened his tie. He lit a cigarette gratefully then moved around the store, checking light switches, turning off the massive GEC displays and appliances. Finally, he approached a huge bomb shelter that took up the center of the floor. He climbed the ladder to the neck and stepped onto the lift. The lift dropped with a whoosh, and a second later, he stepped out into the cave-like interior of the shelter. In one corner, Mike Foster sat curled up in a tight heap, his knees drawn up against his chin, his skinny arms wrapped around his ankles. His face was pushed down. Only his ragged brown hair showed. He didn't move as the salesman approached him, astounded. Jeez, O'Neill exclaimed. It's that kid. Mike said nothing. He hugged his legs tighter and buried his head as far down as possible. What the hell are you doing here? O'Neill demanded surprised and angry. His outrage increased. I thought your folks got one of these. Then he remembered. That's right, we had to repossess it. Al Connors appeared from the descent lift. 
What's holding you up? Let's get out of here and... He saw Mike and broke off. What's he doing down here? Get him out and let's go. Come on, kid, O'Neill said gently. Time to go home. Mike didn't move. The two men looked at each other. I guess we're going to have to drag him out, Connor said grimly. He took off his coat and tossed it over a decontamination fixture. Come on, let's get it over with. It took both of them. The boy fought desperately, without sound, clawing and struggling and tearing at them with his fingernails, kicking them, slashing at them, biting them when they grabbed him. They half-dragged, half-carried him to the descent lift and pushed him into it long enough to activate the mechanism. O'Neill rode up with him. Connors came immediately after. Grimly, efficiently, they bundled the boy to the front door, threw him out, and locked the bolts after him. Wow, Connors gasped, sinking down against the counter. His sleeve was torn and his cheek was cut and gashed. His glasses hung from one ear. His hair was rumpled and he was exhausted. Think we ought to call the cops? There's something wrong with that kid. O'Neill stood by the door, panning for breath and gazing out into the darkness. He could see the boy sitting on the pavement. He's still out there, he muttered. People pushed by the boy on both sides. Finally, one of them stopped and got him up. The boy struggled away and then disappeared into the darkness. The larger figure picked up its packages, hesitated a moment, and then went on. O'Neill turned away. What a hell of a thing. He wiped his face with his handkerchief. He sure put up a fight. What was the matter with him? He never said anything. Not a damn word. Christmas is a hell of a time to repossess something, O'Neill said. He reached shakily for his coat. It's too bad. I wish they could have kept it. Connor shrugged. No ticky, no laundry. Why the hell can't we give them a deal? Maybe... O'Neill struggled to get the word out. Maybe sell the shelter wholesale to people like that. Connors glared at him angrily. Wholesale? And then everybody wants it wholesale. It wouldn't be fair. And how long would we stay in business? How long would GEC last that way? I guess not very long, O'Neill admitted moodily. Use your head. Connors laughed sharply. What you need is a good, stiff drink. Come on in the back closet. I've got a fifth of Hague and Hague in a drawer back there. A little something to warm you up before you go home. That's what you need. Mike Foster wandered aimlessly along the dark street, among the crowds of shoppers hurrying home. He saw nothing. People pushed against him, but he was unaware of them. Lights, laughing people, the honking of car horns, the clang of signals. He was blank, his mind empty and dead. He walked automatically without consciousness or feeling. To his right, a garish neon sign winked and glowed in the deepening night shadows. A huge sign, bright and colorful. Peace on Earth. Goodwill to men. Public shelter admission, 50 cents. In two days on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, trying to connect hillbilly Bud Gregory with the atomic dust destroying America was like joining simple math and nuclear physics. But Dr. Murphy found the answer. 
The Gregory Circle by Murray Leinster. That's in two days on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 